Hello and welcome to God Trip Podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm here with Todd. Today we're going to be talking about the Mel Lyman family, otherwise known as the Fort Hill community, a religious group that started in 1965 and continues to this day. How you doing, Todd? Oh, I'm pretty good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. All right, so I'm just going to start by playing a little bit of Mel Lyman at the Newport Folk Festival, July 25th of 1965. performance at the Newport Festival in 1965. It was He wasn't scheduled to play, but he claimed that God told him to play Rock of Ages, and he played for about nine minutes. Quite beautiful, wouldn't you say, Todd? Oh, yeah, that's the point in history where Bob Dylan sort of upset all of his fans by coming out with an electric guitar, the band behind him. It's kind of thought of at the point where Dylan stabbed folk music in the back and switched to rock and roll. He was essentially booed. He didn't wasn't booed off stage. He finished the set, but people started to walk out. That's the point where Mel Lyman takes the stage and God tells him to play Rock of Ages. Kind of a turning point in rock and roll history. I mean, when you listen to that piece all the way through, you can hear while he's playing the harmonica, he's either sobbing or laughing maniacally in the background. I it's hard to explain. It's kind of a kind of a crazy laugh, like Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon chuckles, you know. Right, right. And since I, I haven't been able to find a, a video clip of it, I've only heard audio clips, so I don't I don't know what he was what he was doing, crying or laughing, but it was super passionate. Like you could tell he really was feeling it. Yeah, some people I think thought it was sort of a artistic statement against Dylan forsaking folk music that night. Right, right. Yeah. And I think it was a great opportunity to get your name out there for Mel Lyman. These people who were passionate about folk music and they were very angry at Bob Dylan for playing electric, electric guitar and rock and roll. Um, here comes Mel Lyman with this very simple, very heartfelt, soulful rendition of Rock of Ages, which is what the folk people loved. They loved that very sincere, very simple expression. Let me tell you about Mel Lyman's life before he became a religious figure. He was born in Eureka, California, March 24th, 1938. And I think he had kind of like a blue, like a blue collar family upbringing. But when he was very young, he traveled around the country on the train like a hobo. 
and he was fascinated by Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy and that life on the road, and he was a major fan of Woody Guthrie. And if you you look at a picture of him, he looks a lot like Woody Guthrie, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, I just started to see that. Yeah, the curly hair and everything. Well, my first thought was he looked like a a starving Christopher Walken. Definitely, yeah. He's got those big eyes, and he's very, very skinny. Um, uh, he looks almost like he's unhealthy. That's how skinny he was. Um, but yeah, these really big, intense eyes. And in some of the pictures, they kind of freak me out a little bit, <laughs> the way he looks. And I also have to say, the very first time I looked at his a portrait of him that was taken by the famous photographer Diane Arbus... I didn't realize it was Mel Lyman. I thought it was a picture of a woman, and I kept looking for the Mel Lyman photograph. I thought he looked like the secretary on the Beverly Hillbillies, Miss Hathaway. Jane Hathaway. Yeah. Nancy Cole. Nancy Cole. That's the name of the actress? Yeah. Uh, I read one account uh, by a close friend of his. He would often travel down to New Orleans where his friend lived. He was always kind of searching for the meaning of life, basically like the inspiration, um, a spiritual vocation and a direction, I think. He was a very deep person and he would often talk to his friends about the meaning of life and God and spirituality, philosophy. He was a searcher. He was definitely a searcher. So his friends were not surprised when they found out that he decided to become a religious figure. He was uh, involved with uh, Jim Queskin's Jug Band, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is kind of the transition to how he became the religious figure. That's right. After he learned to play bluegrass music with a famous banjo musician named Aubrey Ramsey in North Carolina, he moved to Boston. He, I think he was mostly just playing by himself and hanging out with his girlfriend, Judy Silver, and experimenting with drugs, especially with uh, hallucinogenic, LSD, and morning glory seeds. But he was also traveling around, and at some point he got arrested in Tallahassee with drugs, I think with Mary marijuana. The judge said that he could either do some time behind bars or he could get a job. So what he did was is he he tried out for Jim Queskin's Jug Band, which was a very popular band at that time in Boston. He, Jim Queskin and his Jug Band were a, a kind of a big deal in Boston around the folk scene. Yeah, they were on a even on a few uh, mid-60s variety shows. It's a novelty act, I think. Oh, that's like Steve Allen, I believe. I love watching those old mm. clips uh, from those talk shows. So Jim Queskin was a really, he's actually still alive, and he's going to be performing in New York and Massachusetts in April. So if anyone is interested in actually hearing Jim Queskin play, you can hear him play in April. He's going to be performing in New York and in Massachusetts, which is very, very weird for us because we're used to talking about people who are long past. And here is a very important figure in this story who is actually still performing music and still lives in the religious oh, yeah. community. I had no idea he was alive. Yeah, I was very surprised. He must be in his 70s at least. Yeah, I think he is in his late 70s. I wish I could travel and go and listen to him because I think that would be really interesting. But I'll be busy working, so I'm not going to make it. But I totally recommend that you go and check it out. It's a... He's a really interesting figure in music history. 
He spent a lot of time researching jug bands, you know, early American jug bands. And he traveled around the country and found people who owned 78 records with jug bands on them. And he recorded them and just did a ton of research before he started his own jug band. And they were a very popular act in this folk scene in Boston in the early 1960s. He tried out Mel Lyman and he was impressed with him and he added him to his band. So that is originally how Mel Lyman uh, kept himself from going to jail. Uh, you can you can tell this is the early 60s because if a judge ordered you to get a job now and you said, okay, I'm going to play in a jug band, <laughs> they'd put you straight into jail, right. you know? Or a mental hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a different time for sure. So Mel Lyman played in Jim Questkin's band, and he was a contentious figure in this band. He would refuse to play if he didn't think the band was reaching a very divine place in their musical expression. And he defined that as it had to be spontaneous. He thought that you had to prepare to be spontaneous, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. He was looking for this particular aesthetic, and it was this very genuine, very original spontaneous expression and I, I i think he believed it was um the voice of god he he later on he talked about his his harmonica as being an instrument of god's voice man this is a jug band we're talking <laughs> i mean not not beethoven <laughs> so i think um, other members of the band would get very frustrated because mel would refuse to play when he didn't feel like they were really reaching that that sweet spot but Jim Queskin, the leader of the band, really, I think, understood where Mel Lyman was coming from and really respected his, his aesthetic as they got their relationship uh, continued and they, got, they played music together and talked a lot together. Jim Queskin began to really admire Mel Lyman and made him very central to the band and central to the recordings of the band. Kind of the first, con the first convert, you know. Yeah, Mel. Yeah, you could say Jim Queskin was Mel Lyman's maybe first first convert, and and continued on as almost his like first lieutenant in the community. Is that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So and like I said, he's still alive today, and he's still a member of this community. Mel Lyman was very much in love with his girlfriend at the time. This is the early to mid 60s uh her name was Judy Silver, and she was a student in Boston. According to Mel Lyman, he tried to dissuade her from taking hallucinogenics. He felt that she wasn't ready. She wasn't the kind of person that could handle it. And she went ahead and used LSD anyway and ended up having major breakdown. Um, it's From what I read, it sounds like she had a major de depressive episode. She was catatonic and stopped going to class and stopped talking. Eventually, her parents came and got her and brought her back home to Kansas. It's uh, kind of odd because his first book is uh, dedicated to her, and the way he words it is he sort of thanks her for breaking his heart. That's so uh, interesting. Yeah, that's sort of a precursor to the closest thing I've ever got of any theology he ever really had, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, I I heard I recently listened to a recording of I think probably one of the people from the con- the, the community that's still around, and they explained the theology of Mel Lyman and their group. And this is um, this is what I understand. They believed, or Mel Lyman believed that to become real and in the moment, you had to be confronted with adversity. So maybe breaking, having this girl friend have a breakdown and leave him, which caused him a great deal of heartbreak. You know, there are evidence that he never really got over this heartbreak. Maybe he felt that through this heartbreak, it developed his character and his connection to God. I'm just guessing about those things, but it seems connected to this philosophy that I I listened to in this recording. It seems that they believe that the more, the more that you challenged people, the more, what am I trying to say? The more that you challenged people, the more they let go of their egos and became more genuine, more of their original spirit. And when I was reading this, I was thinking about George Gurdjieff, the Russian philosopher, he had a similar philosophy, and in his fourth way philosophy, he called it stepping on people's corns, like the, if you had a corn on your foot and someone stepped on it, it would hurt. So he would find the weakness of a person and really challenge them, or like, basically, if he saw a wound, he would like poke at their wound, and he felt that that was how you developed your spirit and you let go of your ego and when i heard this recording about mel lyman's philosophy that's the impression i got and i wondered if maybe he if mel lyman was aware of gurdjieff and had read about his philosophy gurdjieff was really popular in the late 60s and all so yeah so it's very likely that he did mel lyman was also very much into astrology and macrobiotics he taught classes in macrobiotics, astrology, and the I Ching. His group was, like, obsessed with astrology, or I, I maybe I assume they still are. Um, they would ask everyone they met what their signs were, and they would, I think, discuss people's personality in context with their astrological sign. Yeah, they'd even have names for each other, like Steve Sagittarius, Julie Scorpio. That's the way they talked and yeah and they they considered it as a medium of communication to speak in astrological terms i think that's interesting i i mean i think that you can maybe use any kind of perspective to understand people and discuss them and understand yourself and discuss others i personally i really love the enneagram and i I find a lot of wisdom in the Enneagram, understanding people and um, having more compassion for them. And I guess for them, it was it was astrology. And it sounds really cliche, but if you think about it, this was really before astrology was like a cliche. I would think yeah. like maybe 10 years before it. Yeah, I mean, at that point in time, was, you know, you ask somebody what their astrological sign was, it's what's your sign. It wasn't a cheesy pickup line sort of thing. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a lot of this stuff really has to be taken into the context of just right at the beginning of the hippie era. You know? Right. Yeah, I think they're almost like pre-hippies in a way. Like, somewhere right on the edge of b- 
bohemian beatniks and hippies. They were like yeah. right in between those two groups. They were involved with took over is probably a better way to put it. One of the early one of the early underground magazines called the Avatar. And whereas Lyman never actually physically set foot in their office, he would send so much written material to them that eventually the, the the magazine was quite literally about him with his picture on the cover every every issue and all. And it seemed like he was very smart about um about PR and getting the word out about himself. Like he was one of those people that thought that there was no such thing as bad press. <laughs> yeah. And the Avatar was under like he basically had his early community members uh get involved with the Avatar as much as possible. And they they did it very consciously. They very consciously took over that magazine. And it was an underground magazine. Uh, I guess the police were very aware of that magazine, and I read that they had a a bulletin board up with pictures of all the people that were connected to Avatar, and most of them were members of Mel Lyman's community. Yeah, there was uh, it was a literal coup the way they took it over, and I've read a few of Lyman's dispatches. One interesting thing about it is whenever someone would confront him for claiming to be God, he'd reply that he was just trying to shock them out of their complacency. You're going to shock me out of my complacency by making me think you're bonkers, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I, I mean, you have to, like, I, I try to remind myself they were taking a lot of LSD. I think that they were, like, searching. They They were... A lot of these people were really searching for maybe a father figure and some direction, and they didn't really identify with the the hippie liberal sensibility. He kind of put out this persona of um, a very confrontational person, and he talked a lot about sma- like smashing people's ideas and smashing their smashing the world actually i have some some lyrics that he wrote that are very aggressive and intense um he his here are some of his lyrics i'm going to reduce everything that stands to rubble and then i'm going to burn the rubble and then i'm going to scatter the ashes and then maybe somebody will be able to do something as, as it really is. Watch out. So he was all about trying to shock people and upend everything, which was... Uh, I'm assuming he wrote that before the Manson family. <laughs> I, th- I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. This was... Um, I'm not exactly sure because I don't have a date for it, but I think so, yeah. Oh, yeah, they were very, very affected by by the Manson family, not merely because of the uh, obvious similarities, but it brought the heat down on them to a degree. Right. Well, that's another thing is uh, their most famous converts were probably the uh, actor and actress from the Antonioni films of Brisky Point. Right. Mark Frechette. Daria Halpern. Yeah, Daria Halpern, that's right. And uh, it's kind of illustrative of the way things were, because the Frechette fellow had been hanging around their wee community before, and they sort of blew him off as being a dumb hippie. 
And then Antonioni's casting director sees him in a violent shouting match on the street and thinks, this is the terrorist we need for the movie. And uh, next time he goes back to Lyman's compound, he's welcomed with open arms. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting and bizarre that there were people who wanted to be part of the, um, the community, the religious community, and they were... I guess it was not that easy. Like, you couldn't just show up and say, I want to be a member. Apparently, it was hard. Like, you had to be approved. And I thought that was kind of different than most communities of this type. You know, most communities of this type, it seems like they'll take everyone that they can get. Oh, I don't know. I've heard that the Banson family ran people off fairly frequently. They didn't contribute in whatever way they thought they should be contributing, you know. Okay, but that's all, that's like already giving them a chance, right? This this seemed to me like um, they wouldn't even let him Mark Frechette in the door at first. Yeah, they thought he he was everything they were against. They thought he was a brain dead hippie. Okay. Um, and, yeah, so he came back like having. become a movie star with his beautiful girlfriend. They're both gorgeous, actually. I think, like, when I looked at, when I watched their appearance on the Dick Cavett show, I was, I was stunned at how good looking they were. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't think it was just his, like, shouting or his crazy behavior that got him uh, noticed by Antonioni's casting director, but also just, like, really one of the most handsome people I've ever seen. Gorgeous. Yeah, what was... She said something like, I've got my star. He's hateful and he's 20. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So they they got welcomed into the Mel Lyman's community after they made this movie with Antonioni. And I think they brought back like $65,000 and contributed it to the community, which I'm sure helped... A lot, and um, and then I know you watched this as as well as I did. We we both have watched the Dick Cavett episode where Mark Frechette and Daria Halperin are promoting Zabriskie Point, this Antonioni movie, and I use the word promoting very lightly. <laughs> yeah, Dick Cavett. Uh, I read an interview with him about something else, and. Uh... He recalled when they were on, he said it was creepy. I had a talk show, not a sit-and-stare show, you know? Yeah. they. I mean, Mark did some of the talking, and Daria hardly did any of the talking, but they both seemed super angry and disturbed. I mean, I would say, especially for Shet, seemed, he seemed brooding and angry. And um, everything that he said was kind of, strange like it was very unexpected basically he said that he wasn't really happy with the way that the movie had turned out but that he'd learned a lot and he respected Antonioni a lot and I thought that was all very weird um you're on a talk show to promote a movie and you say you're not happy how it turned out but you do respect the director Uh, yeah well he was doing everything within his power when they were filming to convert Antonioni to Mel Lymanism. Uh-huh. He'd like put Mel Lyman Brooks in the scene in a sort of weird product placement kind of way, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, it got so that they had to go in and clear the propaganda off the set before they could shoot, you know. 
Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't read that. That's interesting. Yeah, and he was leaving uh, Lyman's books and articles in Antonio's paper or in Antonio's trailer every day. And, you know, he quite literally converted his co-star, who he ends up ends up his girlfriend. Of course, as soon as they break up, she leaves the commune and leaves God for Dennis Hopper and all that. <laughs> but, yeah. When they... the, she, yeah, she was only really half converted. <laughs> so when they were on the Dick Cavett show, one thing that I thought was really strange was, well, I mean, it was all very, it was really one of the weirdest, weirdest talk show appearances next to Crispin Glover on David Letterman. <laughs> you know, super weird. Well, at least that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. This is just creepy for sure. But Daria seems angry too and doesn't say much. But when she does start talking, Mark kind of talks over her. I think inadvertently. He didn't, I don't think he meant to. And then she gets really mad and says, Oh, you want me to talk? As soon as I start talking, you start talking over me. Like, they have this little spat on the show, and uh, that's super awkward. And then he's like, yeah, okay, we'll go ahead and talk. And then she seems completely drugged out to me. Like, I, just from my own perspective, she seems like someone who's, like, tripping out on LSD, like, right on the air. Yeah, and they're there with Mel Brooks and uh, Rex Reed, or the other guest. Right. And they're talking circles around him, you know? Yeah, and they're making jokes. Rex Reed's like, I've heard Antonioni is really difficult on actors, and they just sit there in silence. Yeah, it was so weird. And Mel Brooks goes, so you live in a commune, like on Easy Rider? And it's like, it's not a commune, it's a community. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, it's nothing like the uh, what you saw on Easy Rider. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? And and Frischette says, it's, we're not like living together and sharing. We're living together to support Mel Lyman. Like they're all working, yeah. all of their effort and their uh, work and their money and their everything is to support their leader, Mel Lyman. Yeah, that was, that was the creepiest part. I mean, I think that Cavett was expecting... An answer that makes sense, you know? It's like... <laughs> oh, man. And, can, can, like, right now they consider themselves a collective, is what I read. Like, currently they, I think they share everything and, like, basically work and live as a commune, but they call it a collective. It's kind of like the same thing, I would say. Yeah, I generally associate more collective with more of a slightly more political bent. But I don't know what their religious experiences are or what, I mean, what their philosophy is right now religiously in the contemporary group. I think they've had like three generations of members already. Like they've raised three generations as a community and they support themselves with this construction company that still exists and you can go on their Fort Hill Construction Company website and they've done work for Steven Spielberg and I think they do, from what I read, they do amazing work. They're very, their quality is excellent. Yeah, they, where I'm from, they say the same thing about the Amish. And they say Mel Lyman was very much, he promoted hard work and excellence. So in the beginning of their community, when they were 
they were fixing up these old houses in Roxbury in outside of Boston, if there was a tiny mistake in their construction and renovating, he would ask them to rip it down to the bare bones of the building and start over. They had like one building that would be for guests or new members or whatever, a building that was nothing but children who, if I recall, raised themselves. Uh, Am I right on that? Well, I don't know if you could say that they raised themselves, but they actually lived alone. The children all lived alone in like a, a house that was considered the nursery. From what I understand, right. like, there wasn't a person. night and um i don't i'm not exactly sure how they were raised i think there was education from what i've read there was some over the years there was some homeschooling and sometimes they went to public school i don't know how it was in the very beginning when they were living in this house but what i read was that they were taken away from their parents when they were two years old to live in this nursery house by themselves that sounds like what we talked about the United community. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I, I I I can't really relate to this idea that you put kids all together in a house all by themselves. That seems like dangerous and scary. I'm picturing like Lord of the Flies only in a Boston ghetto. Yeah. I I wonder yeah. what age they had to be to like move out of it. Was there a main communal house then? Because I'm getting the impression there was. I believe so, and I imagine that it was probably the one that Mel lived in. Yeah, I keep hearing references to communal meals. They had communal meals, and I I believe that probably the main house was the one Mel was living in. I read about their communal, when they had, like I said, they ended up with a lot of houses all over the country. They started in Boston, but Mel actually, uh, when he passed away, he, he was living in a very fancy house in California with a swimming pool and, um... A sauna, I think a hot tub. <laughs> Their community meals were... Anyway, I got the impression from reading about that uh, situation. Uh, they were very tense, and they would sometimes attack people, like at a meal, if they felt like a couple was getting too romantically interested in each other. They would tease them a lot. And similar to the Oneida community, they didn't, yeah. they didn't like the people getting too romantically close. I also read that they they were discouraged from having sex, and I read that the, at least once a woman was pressured into having an abortion. So I think a lot of their lives were, you could say, controlled or regulated by Mel Lyman. Yeah, well, something I read, because I read in the Rolling Stone article that sounds trivial. They all gathered for a communal meal of macaroni and cheese. And I read somebody else that visited who said they were eating macaroni and cheese. And I've got to thinking, you know, I've read that one way 
One component of a brainwashing program is to feed people heavy starch diets because it makes them sluggish. And I started thinking more about how many other uh, brainwashing techniques were involved in the Fort Hill community. I mean, everything from targeting people who are a little lost in life to controlling people's sleep patterns. I believe Lyman at one point decided everybody should wake up an hour earlier every night for a few weeks. Basically, he I think it was based on his own like strange uh, idiosyncrasies where he would find himself waking up an hour earlier, and so he would instruct the group to wake up an hour earlier. So they would, for instance, say they would wake up at 6 a.m. for two weeks, and then the next two weeks they'd wake up at 5 a.m., and then the next two weeks... After that, it would be four and three and two and one, et cetera. And so sometimes they were living in what they called, like, I think their night schedule. So they would be, like, having breakfast at, like, 10 p.m. And their whole workday was at night. That would be, you you can imagine that that would be disorienting. Well, yeah, particularly if you're doing construction for a living. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, one thing I, I am curious about, and I've never been able to put my finger on it, it seems to me that he became more and more reclusive as time went on. Yeah, I got that impression, too. That yeah, it's uh he would be very hard for an outsider to get in touch with. I believe that uh, some rival guru actually managed to get into his bedroom at one point or something, and they had an argument about which one was the real god or something. And uh, after that, they even built a physical wall around his his house, and. But it just seems like for someone to act, get in contact with them by the time the Rolling Stone article was written was next to impossible. But Dave, I believe David Felton, the guy who did write that article, it's an amazing article, by the way. It's like it's like 100 pages long. It's like a book. And he interviews dozens and dozens of people, ex-members of the group. And I think he talks to current members. He talked to Mike Kindman, who wrote a book called My Odyssey Through the Underground Press. He was an ex-member who claimed that um, they wouldn't let him leave when he wanted to leave. He had to escape secretly at night. So it's almost like he was a a cap. And they had what they called, this is according to David Felton, the karma squad of ultra loyalists. (laughs) And so when Mel Lyman was not happy with something, he would send the tough guys who were part of the karma squad to basically intimidate people and sometimes beat them up. For instance, when they were trying to, they were trying to infiltrate this TV station in California. They basically, eventually, the people that were infiltrating it, the the, the people running the TV station, finally realized that they were they were weird and yeah. they didn't want them around anymore. And they were trying to take over. They they tried to intimidate and uh, bully people. The same thing happened when they tried to take over a radio station called KPFK. Basically, infiltrated it and had one of their people from the community become the main producer at the station, he eventually got a, a, a regular show for Mel Lyman called, I think it was called Wake Up. And uh, Mel Lyman, just, like when he would hear the show, his recording broadcast on the radio, he didn't ever think it was loud enough. And Mel was very technically minded when it came to audio and visual recordings. So 
he kept giving the word that he wanted his his show to be broadcast louder and the engineers would say we're playing you as loud as we possibly can without distortion like we don't want you to be distorted and this is really as loud as we can get it without having distortion and mel didn't like that answer eventually had his karma squad show up with tire irons and baseball bat they claimed that they were taking back their record shelves that they had built um but they physically intimidated people they chased people down the hall they chanted all kinds of weird things like you're not real you're not alive you're dead they were chanting all these really things and totally freaked everybody out yeah they wanted it to go to 11 (laughs) you know it's it's like see it's like kind of ironic that here these people start out or lyman starts out as this folk music acoustic purist yeah and then becomes completely media obsessed when the money starts rolling in you know yeah that's one way of looking at it and the frechette guy and a couple of the other big wigs involved in a bank robbery yeah that's right and one of them was killed and frechette ended up in prison yeah where he died as well yeah and... according to frechette they they robbed that bank because they they were really angry about Richard Nixon, and they felt like the country was going down the tubes, and that this was their way to protest the terrible way that society was going. Also, I think that he thought that he was going to end up with like $100,000 uh, from the bank robbery that was going to help him make a movie that Mel Lyman wanted him to make. They had a producer in Hollywood that was ready to help them or work with them. But I Man, that's it's some grip on reality. Yeah. At first I thought it was just a a money thing. Like they just wanted to collect as much money as they could or steal as much money as they could. But then I read that like Frechette really was kind of obsessed with Richard Nixon and when he got arrested and put in prison for this bank robbery, he put on he wrote and put on like an anti Nixon play in prison. So I really do think that's with Nixon. It's a good story about how the one of them ended up getting killed. He was uh, sort of a lookout, but they had him dressed in a security guard uniform, and the police walked up to him and said, is there a problem, sir? And the obvious answer to that would be, no, officer, everything's fine. But instead, he pulled a gun on him, and they shot him. Wow. And, and then uh, Frechette died in prison in a freak weightlifting accident, I think. Yeah, two years later. And they said that he was very upset by and felt very guilty and terrible about his partner getting killed. Um, Frechette, Frechette had a gun, too, but he dropped his gun as soon as he saw the cops, and well. they didn't shoot him. And then they found out that his gun didn't have bullets in it anyway. He went to prison and he got very, very depressed. And right around the anniversary of his friend getting killed in this bank robbery, he was, they say he was really skinny, wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, he was very depressed. And he went in the gym to work out and he wasn't really strong enough to do this weightlifting that he thought he could and he he dropped the belt, the barbell, and it killed him. But what I read was that it was pretty... I mean, most people think that it really was what happened, but really nobody knows because no one was there. And there was no... I don't... What I read was there was no, like, bruise where the barbells would have hit him. 
and maybe cut off his airways? I don't know. Well, I think his lawyer, or either his lawyer or one of the prison officials, uh, said he was actually a fairly popular guy in prison. So. So it's not like he didn't really have any enemies. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it probably was an accident, but very sad kind of situation and tragic. Oh, one thing that I wanted to read is a very interesting letter that Mel Lyman wrote to his fourth grade teacher. Um, this was right when the Rolling Stone album was being published, and I think there were different parts of it published monthly. He was concerned about his fourth grade teacher, who the writer of the article had contacted. So here's his letter, and I think this is a weird, interesting contrast to his hateful lyrics and is you know people going like sending people to a a tv station with um baseball bats and intimidating people he wrote this letter to his fourth grade teacher in 1971 dear mrs duke received your warm and friendly letter this morning i thought i'd better write and warn you about the rolling stone article before you got the wrong impression the first installment just came out and the second installment will be in the next issue This is the one that will probably contain parts of your conversation with David Felton. The first one is mainly negative, made up mostly of interviews with people who don't like me. They've used me to glorify themselves and completely distorted all the facts. They've even changed history to make me look bad in them. I'm not complaining, mind you. I'm just pointing out that most of the things said about me and my community are untrue. I'm used to being misinterpreted. I've made a lot of enemies over the last 10 years, and they've got in a dig every chance they get. Still, it's good publicity. I sound like a very exciting character, kind of a modern-day John Dillinger. The next issue will hopefully be a little closer to the truth, as the people interviewed are not necessarily hostile toward me, and also the coming issue will contain a direct interview with me, and at least I will be represented by my own words. There are a lot of things you aren't going to be able to understand about me and in, in my religious convictions, but it is all just language anyhow, and words are never as important as pers- personal evaluation. I I received your letter about the merits of profanity. I had to laugh. I too wish there weren't so many dirty words in the book. I think he's talking about his autobiography. I I too wish there weren't so many dirty words in the book, but you have to remember how the book is made up entirely of of letters I wrote in my youth. And I couldn't tidy it up now just because I'm a little older and wiser. It was an accurate history of growing pains. And for my obsession with bodily excrement, I can only plead guilty. In some ways, I'm afraid I will always be a vulgar little man. But again, to me, it's only language i use the words that best communicate the thought or feeling can you think of a better way to say oh shit it seems you were put off a little by any trials and tribulations in the book and the worst parts were left out because i was even too miserable to write letters but that is one of the reasons i put the book out to show that the human spirit cannot be defeated and that adversity only strengthens a man's character It grinds out the littleness in him. It deepens him. And that is why so many young people come to me for guidance, because they know I can understand their problems. So rest assured that I haven't lost any of my appreciation for the beauty of the world. Spending so much time in the ugliness only serves to distinguish beauty by the lack of it. And the weaker souls among us need encouragement. A lot of people just don't have it in them to get up after they've been knocked down. And those of us who have that kind of strength must share it. Over over the years, I have learned how to build. I have learned how to start at home with the people around me, and that is the basis of my communities. 
I remember when you made me play baseball against my will because I was afraid I would fail. I remember when I was afraid of a bully and you said it was you, you would go out and lick him. We had a community and you were the leader and now I am the leader of my own community. Life is really very simple. It is only the attempts to communicate it that make it seem more complex. Well, I guess I'm giving you a schoolboy lecture, but it's nice to know that I've learned something, isn't it? Write me again after you've read the two issues of Rolling Stone and let me and tell me if you still like me. Love, Mel. So what do you think about that, Todd? <laughs> that may be the most lucid thing I've ever heard that he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that he, I don't know, like when I read this, I thought, is he like just playing a role sometimes when he acts crazy and... Writes Good about point. being yeah. God. Is he really like, is this the real Mel? And like some of the other examples of Mel that we've read and heard about are like kind of more of a, a role he's playing or maybe vice versa. Maybe he's like trying to seem really normal and um, understandable to his teacher. Well, I picture this woman, this school teacher, what was her name, Dixie or something like that? Uh, maybe. It's Mrs. Duke. I don't know what her first name is. Like an old-time, mid-20th century school teacher, you know? Right. And here's this guy coming from LSD culture, uh, claiming to be God, uh, writing to this woman from his distant past. It just seems just bizarre out there, you know? Yeah, I was very impressed. Um, I, I, I think it's... He must have really loved this woman, and... He remembers her sticking up for him. It's just it's just interesting. Like he was this little kid who was being picked on and his fourth grade teacher stuck up for him. And he was afraid of playing baseball and she got him to do it. Like she helped him to overcome his fears. I don't know. Like I almost feel like he's saying that she helped him to recognize that adversity can make you stronger and that she kind of pushed him to face, face his fears. I think, you know, people are so complicated and I think Mel Lyman especially is complicated. So when he says at the end, like after you read the articles in Rolling Stone, tell me if you still like me, like it really <laughs> Like, it touches my heart, you know? Like, it makes him seem, like, so likable and care. Like, maybe that's why people really liked him and thought he could be... That's that's the kind of thing a fourth grader would say. Do you still like me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just makes him seem so sweet and vulnerable. Like, since we don't know, we never knew him and we never met him. All we can really know about him is what what we've read. And, like, clearly he was very charming and... And I think that he could be very sweet and he could be like very awful. Uh, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but um, it was reported that he would he would he would give people morning glory seeds and he basically intentionally give them more like a bigger dose than most people could handle um, because morning glory seeds can give you kind of a hallucinogenic experience like LSD. He would give people more morning glory seeds than they probably would be able to handle and then he would say i want you to come back and tell me about your experience yeah that was his his, uh mo and that seems so sadistic to me like you put people in this situation where they're going to get really sick and have this nightmarish experience and then you want them to come back and tell you how like what a horrible experience they had i have heard that there with morning glory seeds there's usually vomit involved as well yeah i mean I think any kind of like hallucinogenic experience where like you're going too far with it 
It's going to make you physically sick. And once again, that was um, Manson's strategy as well. He was always the least high guy in the room, you know. Right. And and I think probably, like, also, I think maybe after someone's had a really bad trip and a really bad experience where they got sick, they'd be very vulnerable, and maybe he would sweep down and become their True. protector and, like, maybe take care of them. I don't, like, I don't know. I'm only guessing, but it seems like if they would, they would probably come back very vulnerable after experience like that. And then after they would confess their psychedelic experience to them. They'd go downstairs and everybody would have a sing along and a at a group hug, you know. Yeah. Like a love flooding is what it's called in cult. Yeah. I mean, once again that's something that sounds cheesier in two thousand seventeen than it would have in nineteen sixty nine, you know. I guess so, but I think like anybody like wants to be part of a group. And if you've been through like some kind of traumatic experience, like um a bad a bad hallucinogenic trip and then all of a sudden all these people are showing you all this love and attention and you're being treated like a member of their family i think that most people are kind of vulnerable to that i think people who are attracted to these kind of communities are also people that probably don't have very good relationships with their real families and so here's a chance to actually be feel loved and part of a group maybe for the first time in your life i'm just i'm guessing i'm speculating they take the drug, it puts them in a vulnerable position. That position is filled by this sort of community love-in, and then they go renovate an apartment or something, you know? <laughs> yes, it's so weird. Another thing about Queskin, who we've mentioned, another thing that I read that was that at, like early on, he had this really traumatic experience where he was involved in some kind of a drug deal. And I don't know what that means. It could be like he was buying or selling pot or, I don't know, something more serious. I really have no idea. But he was involved in some kind of a drug deal, and the people he was involved, he was in this business transaction with, got very angry with him, and they ended up, like, beating him to a pulp. Like, he was assaulted by a bunch of people. And the impression I got was that after this experience, he got very close to Mel Lyman. Perhaps, like, after this traumatic experience, he came to Mel, who said, oh, these are the kind of experiences that can transform you. That adversity and difficulty and trauma can turn make you stronger. It, it could even, like, impress Jim even further to have Mel as kind of a father figure. Yeah, post, post-traumatic stress disorder, have some acid. <laughs> yeah, and become part of this group where you feel more protected. Anyway, I'm speculating about that. But well, that makes sense. Yeah. So here's another... You know, particularly with Questkin as being sort of the enforcer afterwards. You know? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to mention one of the things that was reported by some of the ex-members that they had what they called a vault, which was a locked underground room. I don't know if it was like a basement room that was locked or what, but uh, in the early days of the community, they if you got out of line or Mel didn't feel like you were receiving his wisdom or whatever, like if you became persona non grata in the group, then they would lock you up in this vault. You'd be trapped. 
basically until they let you out. Sometimes it would be a few days. And I read one one story that they they got some kind of mel mel gave them a directive to start to build a theater. They started to build a theater and they completely forgot they had someone locked up in the vault. And the guy almost died. Like, he almost starved to death by the time they remembered he was down there. There is some really sick stuff going on. Uh, yeah. Had their own dungeon and everything. Yeah. If that was true, if that what was reported was true, I think that's really intense and that just sounds like the... Like a cult. What were some of the reasons they put people down there? Oh, uh, it's like a threatening to leave, or yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but they didn't like it if someone was threatening to leave. I know that, and they didn't like it when people were getting romantically close. I know Mel wanted every everything that he said done. Like he was very dictatorial. Um, he wanted people to work hard. Uh, so maybe if they weren't working hard, well, I wonder how they treated. The movie star couple that live with them, because they were quite obviously romantically close, you know? Yeah. Actually, this group is somewhat hard to talk about, because they are so close in chronology. Like, they weren't that long ago. There's not, like, books written about them. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to read about them online, for sure, but... Right. I I told you, I, I put his name into World Cat Search Engine... And all I got was a book on harmonicas, you know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so maybe like, and also because the community still exists. So uh, you might get in trouble if you write a book about them. That could be, yeah. So I don't know. But anyway, it's all all we really know is what we, we've read about them and, you know, seen like the videos of the TV interviews and um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm also wondering, you know, I uh, this is just speculation as well. If a major difference between them and the Manson family was that their members were more middle class. Yeah, possibly. I I definitely got the impression that they that uh, a lot of the members were like rich kids or trust fund kids. Yeah. Like Tom. Thomas Hart Benton's daughter was a member, and Thomas Thomas Hart Benton either gave them a house in Martha's Vineyard, or he bought them a house. I'm not, or he gave them the money to buy a house. I'm not exactly sure, but I know they got a lot of money from Tom, the artist, the American artist Thomas Hart Benton, and his daughter was involved with Mel. I'm not sure if she was married to him or his girlfriend, but um, they seem to be getting money from a lot of uh, wealthy people. Yeah, I was uh, under the impression that he had what might call multiple wives at the same time. Is that true? I couldn't tell if it was sequential, sequential, or uh, either his ex-girlfriends continued to live with him, or he had multiple girlfriends at one time, and the Benton woman was one of these. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know. Like, that's one of those things that we just really can only speculate about. I, I don't really understand what it means when that when I read that, like, it was sexuality was discouraged, but they're having children. Uh, what exactly does that mean, sexuality was discouraged? Didn't at one point he make a decree that, well, we have too many kids, everybody has to stop having sex for a while? I didn't read that, but I believe it. I believe that he would do something like that. I picked up that anecdote somewhere, I think. 
Oh, I wanted to mention another thing. They were when Jim Queskin was putting out an album called Jim Queskin's America, and this was one that Mel Lyman was very much involved in. He was you could probably guess that he was really behind the whole album. On the on the album cover was a collage of Mel Lyman's heroes and also people in the group, like people in the community. So, it was like a group picture of the community with like Abraham Lincoln, James Dean, uh, Matt Dillon is played by Jim Arness, John Kennedy, Jimmy Rogers, Vince Lombardi, Henry Miller, the writer, Marlon Brando, the actor, Woody Guthrie, Gene Autry, Henry Fonda, Louis Armstrong, and Superman. (laughs) And I read that these people were Mel Lyman's heroes, but they were also chosen for their astrological signs. And, of course. <laughs> yeah. And um, also Stephen Foster, George M. Cohan. And it's said on the album, there's a quote from Jim Queskin about basically like his, he believed that, anyway, it's, it's this astrological thing. Let me read it. It's said on this album, or actually on the liner notes, the soul that is born in cancer must always find its completion in Aries. When God and man become one, you can read the story of it in Mirror at the End of the Road by Mel Lyman. It is the story of life from the moment it doubts itself and receives its first intimations of immortality to the time it becomes God as it grows from cancer to Aries. You can hear that story in this album if you will step aside and let your soul listen. I am singing America to you, and it is Mel Lyman. He is the new soul of the world. So that's the end of the quote. So Jim Jim Queskin was a Cancer, and Mel Lyman was an Aries. I was under the impression those two signs don't mesh so well. Is that right? (laughs) I don't really know much about astrology. It's like a water sign and a fire sign. Maybe I know more than I admit. (laughs) (laughs) So Aries is a fire sign, and Cancer is a water sign? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I listened to the Lyman Family Record album a few weeks ago. Oh, you did? Okay. And it's almost unlistenable. It's, <laughs> it's like drunk, thr- drunk 13-year-olds trying to play Pink Floyd. Wow. Which I, I've actually heard before. But uh, maybe I don't want to admit that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was just... It was just almost impossible to get through. Uh, That's too bad because I really like the harmonica playing of Mel Lyman. That I yeah, it's so beautiful. You know, it's like, yeah, the folky stuff is great. It's gorgeous. So, <laughs> but I mean, once they went full full cult, uh, it just sounds like Muzak. You know. Oh my gosh! Wow, I'm gonna have to take a listen. That sounds awful. Uh, well, yeah, I I don't recommend it. Well, if there's sedation involved, maybe. I think that's what it sounds like. Yes, it's audio sedation. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crazy. When he died, he was, like I mentioned before, he was living out in California. And he seemed like he was sick for a while. I'm, I'm speculating, but I know that, like, when he was 33, he was, like, skinny as a rail. He ate candy all the time. I don't know what happened to that macrobiotic diet of his, but towards the end, I guess he was eating a lot of candy, and he lost his teeth, and 
he had dentures by the time he was like 33 years old and he was dead by the age of 40. And I don't know what was wrong with him, but so skinny and that, uh, and losing your teeth, it just makes me think that he was probably very sick. What do you think? Yeah, there was some unknown ailment must have killed him. I, I read an article, I think, in the Boston Herald of somebody who'd been to one of their, their houses and seen the photographs of him in every room. He said when you compared the photographs, it was almost like watching a man dying. Wow. You know, because he looked worse in each one. Weird, because he was like, they were rich towards the end of his life. They lived in like, he lived in a beautiful house in California, and he basically had everyone in the community ministering to his every whim. He didn't even really have to give an order. He could just suggest that something would be better and everybody would run and make sure it was done. Like when a journalist was visiting, he suggested that there should be a copy of his autobiography in every room. And like 10 minutes later, a copy of his autobiography was in every room. He had like a swimming pool and like a hot tub and a sauna and was, you know, he was like living like a movie star. So I don't, I don't know what was wrong with him. That's so spiritual. <laughs> right. The most spiritual hot tub I ever saw. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, that, after the Rolling Stone article, they, they clammed up. Converts went from, was I think something like 20, 30 a week to zero. Oh, wow. Well, I can you understand know, uh, why, man. That, that article made them seem like terrifying. I'm surprised. Well, I'm surprised they let journalists in. Like they must have been so kind of un oh, un unself aware <laughs> to let journalists come in and make their observations about their strange way of living. Yeah, I think after that article, they didn't anymore. Yeah, and that was part of the big cover up after his death because they just thought that whatever they said would be taken wrong. Uh-huh. So they covered it up completely. There's not even a death certificate. I'm not even sure how this is legal. Yeah, what happened to him? It's yeah, like, he just vanished. And I, I read that they said that he's like circling the earth. <laughs> uh, whatever that means. Like maybe his spirit is circling the earth or something. At times he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the voice of God. He claimed to be that Jesus returned. And he also claimed to be an extraterrestrial. So maybe that circling the earth has something to do with him claiming to have been an, an extraterrestrial. Claimed he was Christ and Manson was the Antichrist. <laughs> and I think actually Charlie wrote him from jail. Yeah, yeah, they had a correspondence going. And he said that if Charlie got out, he would invite him to be part of his group. His people, from what I hear, also attempt to contact him through mediums and Ouija boards. And I wonder what they've heard. I'm sure they've gotten some answers. I can just, I can believe that they have. Knowing, well, it has. Knowing the Ouija board, the ways of the Ouija. Yeah, I think there was a rumor that he pulled an Elvis and wasn't really dead, but the group insisted he is, so... I think that I always thought, like, because of that Jim Morrison thing where he, you know, there were rumors that he never died. And same with Elvis. It's such a great way to, like, to be, have kind of a mythological status. You know, if, you're, if your death is hidden and people can never actually be sure whether you're alive or dead. It, yeah. It makes you seem like 
superhuman or divine. It's sort of like the power of the media. Like I said, the community still exists, and you can also use their construction services if you go to forthillconstruction.com. All right, thanks for listening to God Trip, and I'll see you next time.